Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. I want, I want to give a plug to a, a business here in Burbank. Um, it's because they've been involved in a community. I've been in Burbank for like 15 years, and uh, it's a restaurant called Gordon Biersch, and um, I'm sure you people know it. It's on the corner of San Fernando and Angelino, and they've been involved, you know, we have a lot of new restaurants and businesses coming into Burbank, and, and you know, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of Asian-oriented restaurants, and you know, there's there's not a lot of just regular good cuisine, and about 15 years ago, Gordon Beer Show opened on the corner, and they revitalized the downtown, because it used to be, they used to have stuff like there was, across the street, there was a, no lie, a UFO bookstore, and then there was this little, like, lucky liquor magic market thing, and so they've come in, and as I said, they've really changed it, and so you got to go check this place out, and what's good is, they do trivia now, and everybody likes trivia, they do that Monday, from uh, seven to nines, and if you go Tuesday, this is no lie. Tuesday, they have from three thirty or three to six thirty. They have they have three dollar beers, and they're big beers, and they're strong beers, and they're micro beers, and you're not going to find that much. So please go down because support Burbank, you know, because we're a great little city. And if you go in, there's some great bartenders, Carlos and Sean. They're guys who've been uh, there from day one. No attitude, make you strong drink, and you can also have fun because in the corner there's a bunch of regulars. There's George Olivos and Bully, and the actor Amar, who's running the show, and a bunch of other guys just hanging out. So go down to Gordon Beers. Get, get, your, get your $3 beers, and they're strong. So anyway, enough about that. I just wanted to give them a shout out. I got to tell you, my guest today, um, I'm really excited to have him. I, it's weird, because when I started comedy, I, I, I worked the door at the Comedy Factory Outlet to get, we would try to get better spots. You know, So if you worked on the staff, you'd get your money and you'd also get spots. And, and I saw his act and he was so funny and it was just, he, it was a character that, you know, back in 88, a lot of people weren't doing characters and there was Emo Phillips, but that was an over the top character. And he always killed the crowd. And then I got a call one time from this booker named Andy Scarpati, who booked like all these clubs back then. And he said, this guy requested me to go to a gig with him at state college, which was like three and a half hours. But he's like, don't worry, you know, he's, uh, you'll, you'll come back at night and all this stuff. And, and it paid me good and I was all happy. And from his recommendation, then I went back and Andy heard good things and he booked me for like 35 week when, weekends one year. And I have the comedy that I got, all that good comedy stage time is to thank to my guest Grover Silcox. How you doing, Grover? I'm <laughs> doing great, Steve. That seems like only yesterday that the, uh, the great comedy factory outlet was alive and, and running. What, yeah, it's amazing. You know, I think about it because, you know, I in the terms of comedy clubs, I mean, and, you know, I played a lot on the road. That was one of the best clubs you could ever perform in because the ceilings were low. Now, given the Saturday late show could get a little rowdy, but yes. it, it was it was an amazing club. Now, now, how did you start into comedy? Because you're one of you. When did you start in comedy? And as a kid. Did you always want to do comedy? Because I know you've also written and done other stuff. I mean, what was Grover Silcox like as, as a kid? Like, what were your goals? <laughs> well, I was uh, I was kind of shy, but at family gatherings, you know, holidays, etc., uh, somehow, like, at the age of six, I was doing, like, pantomime, the red buttons, um, you know, shtick uh, on, uh, you know, vinyl <laughs> or whatever it was at the time. And, uh, but then I go back into my corner and hide again. Okay. So somehow there was a performer in there, but there was, uh, you know, a recluse too. So I have sort of that combination that's carried all through my, my life, really. 
but I, I, I was sort of entertaining at family gatherings. I think a lot of comedians start that way. No, and no. Uh, and then in school, I, I started, you know, making the kids laugh in, 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 in the playground, in the schoolyard, lots of times to protect myself because I wasn't particularly, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't uh, a fighter, let's put it that way. You? No, Grover, really? Yeah, I know that comes <laughs> as a shock. <laughs> so, so you're going along, you're doing this now. Now, did you, did you go to college? I did. I went to Temple University and uh, went, to, went there for communications and was always involved. It seems like everyone sort of gravitated toward, toward what their you know, strengths were. So there were people who went toward the film area. There were folks who went toward television production, radio, etc. So I went toward performing and writing. And uh, I was in everybody else's production. If, I, if it wasn't my own, I was in someone else's. So and it was usually comedic because once you know the word gets out that you're you're a joker, uh, you know you get typecast even in college. Even at Temple, I was typecast. Now, now, so you go to Temple, and now what? What were your plans to do when you got out of college? Did you would you plan to follow into acting, writing? What did you sit there and you know you're involved? And, and of course, when we graduate college, we all know we go to college, we do certain things, we get out, we go completely different paths. But what was <laughs> what was your focus when you were sitting there saying, okay? I'm gonna. I'm gonna graduate. What did you? What were you? I mean, what was in your heart? What you wanted to do? Uh, fright. Fright <laughs> was number one. Uh, what? What am I gonna do? I wasn't exactly Mr. Great with executive function, so I, you know, somehow just if things came naturally, and I always, I always tried to find the route that 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 I could use my, you know, in, my natural talents. So I, I tried to take those pathways, um, but the life skills thing, I was kind of cloistered really up until uh, I graduated from college, and I really didn't know what to do. How do you become the next Milton Berle, right? You know, how do you become the next uh, Woody Allen? Um, I wanted to do comedy. I wanted to make people laugh. I mean, either I did it at home or I did it uh, in class, or I did it on a stage somewhere. But how do you do it and actually get paid for it? That's right. the big question. And really, the comedy clubs weren't um, ubiquitous at that time. This is uh, 73, 1973. So uh, so I, uh, I actually uh, went, uh, uh, sort of manipulated, manipulated my way in, speaking of Milton Berle, to see Milton Berle. He was performing at what was then a big supper club, Remember the supper clubs? Well, I, I remember. It's funny. I still remember. Well, I remember the, uh, we had, in Cherry Hill, we had the uh, the Cherry Hill uh, Music Fair. Not a supper, but I remember, not a supper club, but we had the Music Fair. And I still remember seeing the Unsinkable Brown, Unsinkable <laughs> Molly Brown starring right. Tammy Grimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was the Latin Casino right oh, around yeah. the corner. Right. My parents, my parents used to go there a lot. Yes, I think I saw them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh. And so I, I was sitting in my living room at home thinking, how do I, how do I, um, you know, how do I get in this business? And I'm looking through the paper and I see Milton Berle at the Latin Casino. And somehow I had someone, as a joke, uh, you know, another uh, fellow Al at Temple a year before said, hey, I have the backstage number of the Latin Casino. And he gave it to me, and I, I didn't know what I was going to do with it, uh, but I still had it. You know, 
it was stuck, you know, in my wallet somewhere. And so I just called it on a lark to see if I could talk to Milton Berle, right? Okay. And I got his <laughs> manager, uh, I forget his name now, but uh, he got on the phone and I said, oh, I'm from, and then I thought, I can't just tell him I want to write jokes or I want to be a comedian. What do I do? Can you help me? I, I figured I better have a ruse of some kind. So I said, I'm from uh, the Scene Magazine. It's a brand new mag. This is like the uh, prototype. Is there any way we could talk to Mr. Burl? Oh, Mr. Burl is getting ready for a show, but um, I'll tell you what. Give me a call in about two hours. Call him in two hours. Yes, Mr. Burl said he'd do it. You can meet him at the Cherry Hill Lodge on such and such, a, uh, you know, tomorrow at such and such a time. And so I called a friend of mine who went to Temple with me, uh, whose name was Dave Fem. He is now, unfortunately, passed on, but uh, he was a fellow grad. And, uh, and, and Dave had a, uh, a height situation. He, he was actually a dwarf. Okay. And so the two of us together, I, I had a beard that looked like an Amishman, and he had a camera that was about his, the same size as him. And here we are showing up, in front of Milton Berle's uh, hotel room door. And so, bump, 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 the door opens, and here are these two, you know, look like circus acts or something, and uh, we're here from the Scene Magazine, you know, and Dave goes, yeah, Scene Magazine. And Dave was never impressed with anyone, never, he was never flustered, never impressed, <laughs> deadpan look, hilarious. And one of the most creative guys, he actually was a, uh, a, a videotape editor for uh, WPVI, Channel 6 in uh, Philadelphia for years, and so uh, uh, following this episode, of course, and so, uh, like, where's Burl? Well, he comes out of, like, the bathroom with his terry cloth robe and <laughs> these Coke bottle glasses, and the hair is, you know, he obviously just got up, and he comes, and we hear as he comes, we don't quite see him, it looks like this, like, uh, old bull moose coming, you know, sort of heading toward us, and he goes, what the hell do you do what? Where the hell are you from? I said, uh, Grover Silcox, Scene Magazine. And, and Dave goes, uh, yeah, um, Dave Them, um, the magazine. We didn't even have the name right. He goes, all right, boys, have a seat. And then he, you know, this is a guy, this is so typical of that era, that genre of comedian. He had an audience. And, you know, he, he just entertained us for about, an, about two hours. And he told us old jokes, and he told us about his history, and uh, and 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 uh, and so the, the and then he invited us to the show. We went to see the show together afterwards. He introduced us from the, the stage. Two guys from some magazine, I don't know, <laughs> that, uh, Grabner Slycox and uh, Dave Diamond, or something. You didn't even have our names right. <laughs> but as it turned out, um, it never led to uh, writing jokes for Milton Berle. But fortunately. In like 1977, 78, comedy clubs started. First comedy club start, uh, opened in Philadelphia. And I was married at this point. I quit a job. I had gotten a job at, as an insur at an insurance uh, company, big insurance company in Philly, in their advertising copywriting department. I was writing fabulous, hilarious things like The Unexpected Happened. Little did Bob know when that tractor trailer came through his bay window that he'd kill him immediately, setting up his entire family for the next for the rest of their lives. They couldn't be happier. So uh, I quit that job. My wife was thrilled. I said, I'm going into stand-up comedy. She did support it. 
a little frightened, as I was. And the first, I don't know if you remember, but the, oh, the, I guess the very first venue was Grandma Minnie's on Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. I've heard about that. It's funny because, as I said, I started later. I started like in 88 or 87. But right. I, but I right. heard, yeah, there was a lot of places. And so Grandma Minnie's, was it, was it an open mic or what was the format? It was a Wednesday open mic. And we used to have folks, uh, some guys from New York come down. I met uh, Seinfeld there. I always tell people Seinfeld likes my material because in 1978, after he saw me perform, he walked over and said, I like your dog jokes. <laughs> so I, uh, I now use that whenever I can. And, you know, Seinfeld likes my stuff. He likes my stuff. And, uh, and Jay Leno was there and all, all kinds of people. And, of course, the, the, the local Philly crowd. And from there, it went to Stars and... and uh, and then it went to a place called London Upstairs on Fairmont Avenue in, uh, in Philadelphia. And then ultimately the jailhouse. I know you remember that. I wasn't was around. I wasn't around, but I heard, I've heard stories about the jailhouse because, I mean, that was where, you know, that's when that led to the outlet in the works, right? That is correct. That is correct. The jailhouse was like the grungiest bar. You could, you'd have to really search hard to find one grungier. It was the old Kavanaugh's restaurant restaurant complex. It had like four bars in it. There was a main room and a bar. There was the uh, the the, the uh, whiskey bar. There was the uh, you know you name it. Well, this is just one sort of rectangular room uh, with a bar in it. it. You know, probably the worst veg, the worst logistics for a comedy club. But and we've all played in them. Uh, but uh, it was one of the real first ongoing comedy shows on a weekend, and it was sort of a, a, a fraternity of comics came to t- came together. There were eleven us, eleven of us ultimately, all aspiring to one degree or another to be comedians. And the great thing about it was anything goes. There was you know you could do anything, and uh, I was in my t- late twenties, and 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 I you know. Whatever you know, just do anything you feel like doing it, and it was a great way to experiment and practice and find your your stage character if you have one, and and, and work out material and stuff like that. But to everyone's shock and surprise, it actually got popular, and it became a, a, a real venue in Philadelphia, and and it ultimately led to, to major comedy venues, the Comedy Works and the Comedy Factory Outlet. Now, so uh, that's where things really started to feel like, hey, you know, I might actually have a career in this business. Now, when, when now, I mean, how did you? How did certain acts decide to go to the works and the outlet? Was that just because you liked the venue, or you know, you got along better with Clay or Steve Young, or <laughs> or because it was funny because me and John Matter were talking about this. How back when we were young, they sort of like you know, they sort of not they didn't pit us against each other, but it was like you were the works comic or outlet comic. Which stunk because we just wanted to get stage time. But I know there yes, was- that, that really wasn't helpful to the younger comedians coming up, and it just uh, there was some um, bad feelings that, that came about. What happened was the jailhouse group moved down to the Middle East restaurant and formed the Comedy Factory outlet over the Middle East restaurant, and. The comedians who were sort of serving as the go-betweens between the establishment and the comedians, um, well, as it turned out, they sort of wended their they they found the whole group unruly and uh, unmanageable, 
the, the comedians. And so I guess uh, as things turned out, they took the venue and then Clay and the rest and, and, and myself with him and others went over to this other venue, uh, which ultimately became uh, the new Comedy Factory outlet on Bank Street. And so essentially the Funny Eleven, which is what they called the original group of comics, uh, split up. And one stayed at the venue over the Middle East restaurant, and the other group went to this new venue. And there was some hard feelings, and so as it turned out, uh, I, I wasn't part of the management of this new comedy factory outlet, but uh, you know I, I was one of the early pioneers, <laughs> you might say. So I just stayed loyal to the comedy factory, and others stayed loyal to the works, and then you know, uh, Clay, I guess, uh, banned Eddie Works comics from coming over to his place. And I don't know what the policy was on the other side. But no. As it turned out, everybody, I mean, you know, at least uh, from my perspective, uh, both were thriving comedy clubs. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. Which now, was good for Philadelphia and good for comedy. Well, I got to ask you now, you know, the, the one thing about your act was the true meaning of cool. How did you find the character? And people, just so you know, Grover had this character, and I'll let him talk more about it, but it was so different. At the Comedy Factory outlet, it was one of the first times that you saw video interact. Because I remember people, just you know, people, he would he would come on stage with this character, but they had video screens at the Comedy Factory outlet. And there was a video that would play of a limo pulling up, and Grover would get out. <laughs> sign autographs and then run up the bank the comedy factory outlet was upstairs so he would run it was upstairs yeah you would run up you would run you would run up the steps and if you were watching for the first time people would actually think that you were just pulling up yeah even though us who worked there knew was in the back you know just getting ready to go in but how did you come up with that idea first of all how did you come up with the character and the true meaning of cool and your intro was with the music. How did that all formulate? Because it was very innovative, and there wasn't... I mean, as I said, it, it was a character. There wasn't a lot of characters back then. And because right. it was... it was, I would think it would be... You know, because you were established, you could do it. But if you were young... Because I did a character for a while called Steve the Stud, and you would go yeah. in, and it was hard because people wouldn't know to take you serious. How did you come up with the character, and then the music, and then the idea for the video leading you up the steps? Right. Well, first of all, and, and, and when you think of, of the place, the Comedy Factory Outlet, I mean, it's nothing to brag about right. <laughs> other than it has a phenomenal comedy show. But I mean, the building itself and the, it's in an alley and I would pull up in what looked like a limo, but a closer inspection, it was like an old broken down, you know, Plymouth or something. It was a huge black car, but it was a, you know... It, it wasn't the latest model, let's put it that way. And I get out with a tuxedo, and then I, one of the, the waitresses would hand me a drink. This is all outside in the alley before I even enter, and a cigarette. And then I go in and go up the stairs and through the bar, in, which was partitioned off from the stage, and then into the main performing area. And then everyone, of course, was watching on the video screen, because it all had been on video, all pre-taped. And like you say, they, they thought I was just arriving. Like it was a big deal. Like Sinatra had arrived. Well, I had always, I had always, um, I had always fashioned myself a character. I mean, really great characters come from things that are real in the person's, 
you know, they're just they're just uh, exaggerate. But they're they're, re, they're the real elements of the person. And so that's why, why like somebody like Steve Martin is hilarious. He's kind of a I put him in the realm of character comedians. I'm not equating myself to him, but he has that same uh, character type. Everything is hyped up. But there's something intrinsically natural about it for him. And so it was the same with me. Mine was always, uh, there was a writer uh, for the Inquirer for Variety, Harry Harris, years ago. And at the jailhouse, he, re he reviewed my act. And he, he had the perfect line for my character. So, Rodney Dangerfield says he gets no respect. Grover Silcox is blithely unaware of it. Because <laughs> I come on like I own this fabulous, like it was at, like, you know, uh, uh, the Sands Casino, or I was in Vegas, or playing one of the top, you know, stages in the, in the world, and here I am at this, you know, grungy place. So it, it, that was essentially my character before I came up with the character. And then... There was one show at the Comedy Factory outlet where I had actually developed laryngitis, and it was really an iffy thing whether I was going to be able to go on that night. I felt it coming on, but I thought maybe it'll it'll clear up by showtime. You know, you, you're, you're hoping anyway. And so, come showtime, they used to run a a mix, you know, tape before the show, and there was always this one very funky piece, and. Uh, I basically couldn't talk. And so, you know, you're, you're going to go on no matter what. I mean, that's, that's performing, right? That's trying to get into this business. That's being a comedian. You don't, you're, you'll do anything to perform. It's like Milton Berle brings these two nobodies into his hotel room so he can entertain them for two hours. Like, he doesn't get enough time to do that. So uh, I tell uh, the, uh, the sound guy, I go, you know that funky piece? Just put that on, okay? And I'm going to come on to it. And then when I point to you, just turn it off. But if I point to you again, turn it back on, not knowing whether I could get my voice, you know, maybe I would start falling out. So I figured, well, I'll be saved by the music, and then I'll pick it up again. Well, it turned out I came on, to the, you know, with a drink and a cigarette to the music. And, of course, you know, I'm feeling the music, and I'm coming on like, <laughs> like I own this place. Like, who would even admit that if you saw the place? And I go on stage, and people are, like, falling over. Like, I'm not even, I'm like, wow, this is unbelievable. I don't have a line in my act that gets this kind of reaction. And I'm not saying anything. I'm just bopping around, drinking, you know. And then, and then I, I, point, I, I give them a quick pointer up to, the, up to the sound booth, which was, like, on, this, on a mezzanine. And, it comes, and, it, and the music just snaps right off. And then I can't get a word out because I got laryngitis, and I snap it back on again and start bopping around and like like I you know just continuing the opening, and the crowd is like hilarious. Then I start I start stopping and starting and stopping the the music you know over and over again just in rapid succession, and the crowd is rolling. Then I got the cigarette in my mouth. You know this is how you in like an organic bit it like starts to write itself. So then I. I, I don't even know what I'm doing. I, I got the cigarette in my mouth. I don't smoke, so it's not even that comfortable. Don't you have asthma? I do. I do. <laughs> but it goes to show you, see? Hey, this is show business. You know, I got to risk an asthma attack to, <laughs> to get up on stage. 
So then I, I take a drink, but I got the cigarette in my mouth, and the cigarette goes into the drink, and then all the smoke goes up in front of my face, and the crowd is on the floor. And, and then I just keep working bits, and they just sort of fall into place as I keep doing this thing. And that became my signature opening. And it, like all over the country, other comedians would come, you know, the, the big acts would come, and, work, and I'd work with them, and they go, you got the best opening of, of anybody. I could never find a closer to match my opener, and that was always my biggest frustration. You told me that years ago. I remember you said that. And now I got a question about the opening, though. Okay, so you yeah. do it, you do it on the lark the first time, and because you're sick. Now, what was it like? Did you automatically once you did it say I'm going to keep doing this? And once then it wasn't that organic, off the cuff, like you said, you know, do anything. Was it? Did you feel? It came across as, I mean, it did come across as fresh in, in a crowd's right. eyes, but you as a performer, did you feel it came across as fresh? Because I know you also used to, you know, fake putting a cigarette in your mouth and you bump your crotch out <laughs> and start your music. Did you just start building on that after, as you cultivated it more, were you building it longer and finding certain things that yes. didn't work and would work? And what was that, what was that process like? Yes. Well, when you come up with something that organically... Uh, there's a certain naturalness to it. So it always felt natural doing it. And the other thing is, it was very interactive because I would like shake hands with people and like, you know, throw kisses and, you know, like wink at them and then, you know, stop the music and then look at the crowd like, I don't know what to say and then start the music again. And so it was so organic that it never felt mechanical. And because I would work with an audience, um, they, you know, an audience will help you keep it fresh. And of course, I would, I would, you know, think about how I could innovate it or, or modify it or change it or add something. And whenever I was up there, and that was one of the great things about a small grungy venue like the Comedy Factory Outlet or the Jailhouse, is that they're really kind of like labs. You know, you, you don't, you know, it's you're not your your career isn't going to be crushed if you don't do well. Of course, you always want to do well, but you're willing to try things because your whole career isn't on the line. In fact, your career will be helped if, if you come up with new things. And sometimes, a lot of times you have to fail to do that. But, but that bit always seemed to – I could always add on to it, and I always felt it really cut to the core of my comic personality, of this ridiculously bigger-than-life, you know, blithely unaware of – the derision, you know, comic derision of the class, of the crowd. So yeah, it never felt it never felt uh, strange or mechanical or uh, or not natural. Now every once in a while, very rarely, but every once in a while, uh, it, and this is, I think, one of the risks. Uh, well, it's like, well, really, it, it's like having a routine that you do or a joke that you do that just doesn't work for, for, for some reason. Always works. And then just one crazy show, they're just looking at you. And the thing about a character, the character drives the material. And if they don't buy the character, they don't buy the material. And I had found myself, and maybe this is where I got sort of, you know, stumped in my career in a way, um, finding my way around that frightening, terrifying moment when you're there. This thing has always worked. Isn't like they're not getting it. 
uh, everybody gets it. Why aren't they getting it? And it's like that joke that doesn't that always works in that one day or one show or one crowd. For some reason, they don't get it. And they and, and of course, you know, a comedy crowd when they don't get it, <laughs> they don't get it. <laughs> That's true. You know, I had gone. And back. I find myself becoming mechanical and just just working my way through my routine. You know, uh, not not mailing it in in a way, but you know, going through the mechanics. Uh, until either it came to me or I, I found a way around this this block or I got off. Well, with, with the character, we also, I mean, I know the character, because you, your, your jokes were all written, you also wrote for Harry Anderson, didn't you? Yes, I, I wrote a number of his specials. He had magic specials and other things. He was, uh, he... He was the host for the 10th annual Ace Award, Cable Ace Awards. I don't even know if they have the Cable Ace Awards anymore. It was at the Wiltern Theater in uh, in, uh, oh, in Los Angeles. And uh, I went out for like three weeks to write his monologue and stuff. That was kind of cool, you know, sitting in the audience next to Danny Glover, you know. And, and out comes Harry Anderson doing my routine. So it's like, I hope this goes. Because otherwise you feel like uh, responsible. Uh, fortunately, it did. It did go. Now, how did you meet him? What's that? Did you meet him at the Comedy Factory Outlet? I, I met him at the jailhouse. Okay. I met him at the jailhouse. And, uh, you know, Clay, he has kind of an offbeat personality. Right. And so <laughs> between shows, we're in the, in the office, and he's looking, Harry Anderson is looking at me like, I don't quite get Clay. And I'm looking at him like, you probably don't quite get Clay, do you? <laughs> we're not even saying anything. And we became fast friends by <laughs> sort of that mutual understanding. Right. And uh, and then we went from there. And of course, Clay brought him back numerous times. And we became fast friends. And he, like I said, he hired me to do these various jobs, fly around the country, open for him at different venues. And uh, that, that, was a, that became a great friendship. I still talk to him. And, uh, and and I had a blast, just a blast. I'd fly out there for a week or two or a month or whatever it might be, uh, work on one of his projects. Yeah, it was a sort of a, his, you know, cabal of friends who would, uh, that he, he always went to for when he had a special or some show or some program. And I guess I was included in that. So that, that was great. I had a blast doing that. Now, didn't you also, didn't you open for Dice at the Spectrum? I did open for Dice at the Spectrum. I yes. want to hear this story because oh. I, I I heard it's legendary. And if people, it was when Dice was at the top of his heyday. And in contrast of Grover <laughs> to Dice is like day and night. Because day and night. The Grover well, has a cigarette as a joke. Dice has it as a slice. I got it. I, I've, I've, I've heard this story out from outside, just never parsed. But how did you end up opening for Dice? And what happened? Well, you know, Dice is a character, right? So he related to my character. And maybe I guess I related to his early on when he was, you know, I just saw him as just this crazy guy from some inner city, you know, <laughs> uh, neighborhood. You know, that's his character. And so uh, he used to come to the Comedy Factory outlet. That's where he first landed when he when he performed in Philadelphia. And I guess I opened for him. And then after that, every once in a while, he would call me and say, Hey, Grover, can you open for me at Rascal's West Orange? Or wherever. 
but they were small crowds. So I would come on as a character and be his 20-minute opening act or half-hour opening act, and then he would come on. And, you know, he, uh, let's say he adopted the music opening, similar to my opening, uh, it, just, a, just a little, you know, uh, sort of uh, tip of the hat to my, to my opening. Right. It, 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 was, it was hilarious it was, because I came on, I'm Mr. Like, you know, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not a blue comic. And then he comes on, he's probably the bluest of comics. Uh, so it was kind of funny. So, and I always did fine in a small venue. And uh, so, you know, a couple of years go by and uh, I may have opened for him maybe a dozen times in the small venues, comedy clubs, you know. So now he's doing, you know, arenas and or whatever, you know, the spectrum. So by this time, I'm on uh, the morning show at WMMR, and uh, he's coming to town. <clears throat> and so he's interviewed on the show, and John DeBell, who's the host of the show, says to him, uh, hey, I'm surprised you're coming to the spectrum, you know, the, the hockey arena, essentially, at the time, the Flyers' home. Uh and I, I'm amazed that you're not, you don't have Grover opening for you. And so then Dice starts to chuckle, you know, and I start to shake because, you know, <laughs> I, I'm just not built for the spectrum. But Dice says, okay, I'll put him on. Grove, you want to be on the show? <laughs> I said, uh, sure, Dice, you know, you never say never. He said, okay, I'll tell you what. And then the bell says, what's his uh, fee going to be? I'll give him $100 for every minute he lasts. <laughs> that's always a great sign. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a lot of confidence. I always tell people as after the show, I, I owed him 100 <laughs> So somewhere I have a videotape of him giving advice to my kids in the back of the, uh, you know, where everybody's waiting in the green room, so to speak. So, yeah, I went on and I always say, you know... If, uh, you know, here I am going on, you know, the and I'm just, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. I, I'm really not built for this venue. But I thought, what the heck, give it a try. I'm doing my cat sneezing impression, which, you know, three people can see right. in the front row. <laughs> um, and there's not a lot of talking to the audience because there's like 15,000 of them. And they're all crazy dice, you know, fans. And I always say to people, you know, if uh, 13,000 people are with you, but 2,000 are yelling, asshole, <laughs> it doesn't matter what the 13,000 are thinking. <laughs> so, so, so how did they react to your music going on and, off, going on and off? I heard they were yelling, like when the music went off, I heard some people were screaming at you. Yeah, they were screaming at me. Yeah. And, th and that was just Dice's group. So, no, they were, yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I couldn't even make out who, I mean, it was just a cacophony of sound. And, you know, after a while, you're looking at all of them as like, like they all want to kill you, you know. And, uh, but, you know, I did it as kind of a uh, challenge, as kind of a, uh, you know, see what you can do. And and I knew it would be a great experience. I could talk about it later uh, on Cooper Talk or wherever. Exactly. You knew back then you said one day. That's right. How well, when I had opened for Dice at uh, in, at Rascals one time, we were all in the office, he and his entourage, you know, 
And so uh, Dice is sitting behind the manager's desk. The manager is no, he's out, you know, at the ticket booth. We're supposed to be there for like five days. So lo and behold, a guy calls in and it's a guy who went to high school with Dice and is looking to connect with Dice because he used to hang with Dice. And so Dice is taking the phone call and he's doing some kind of, you know, Pakistani accent or something. I couldn't make it. Whatever. Not, not Dice. So he doesn't, the guy doesn't know it's, he's actually talking to Dice. So, so Dice says, Grover, take the phone, be my manager or something. It's a guy who says, he went to high school with me. They take the call. Go ahead. So I take the call. I have to come up with a character. And Dice then gets his video camera. And suppose somewhere, this is all on video. So the guy goes, hi, I'm Steve Zucker. Uh, look, I went to high school with Dice. Um, I like that. You know, I used to hang with him. And I, I'm sure he'd love to, you know, it would be great to talk to him. Is there any way? Dice is like waving me off, you know. I said, uh, all right, Steven. Look, anybody can say that they... Uh, that they knew Dice. <laughs> uh, call me back in about five minutes. Okay, five minutes. Hello, Steve Zucker's here. Uh, yeah, who, yeah. Is this, this is Rocco Panetti. What can I do for you? <laughs> uh, you told me to call? I did. <laughs> yeah, Steve, remember I, I hung with Dice? Oh, yeah. What, what kind of car did he have? Oh, in high school. You went to high school with him? What kind of car did he have? Oh, I don't know. I, he had a, uh, I think he had a, uh, a Chevelle. <laughs> Call me back in five minutes. <laughs> Calls back in five minutes. Rocco Panetti. Yeah, this is Steve Zucker. Yeah. Well, you called me, told me to call back. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, what color was the car? I don't know. I think it was blue. Call me back in five minutes. <laughs> this goes on and on. And I'm thinking Dice is going to intercede and, and, you know, take care of the guy, give him tickets or whatever, you know, laugh. At it just keeps going. After the show, it's three o'clock in the morning now. We're back at the at the hotel in Parsippany and we're all in Dice's room. The whole entourage of me. Dice has his camera again. He goes, Grover, call Steve. <laughs> I go, it's three o'clock in the morning. Oh, come on. Call him. Call him. I go, all right. So I call him. I go, ring, ring. And the guy answers the phone. He's obviously been asleep. Hello? Was it a four-door or a two-door? Take your time. <laughs> and the guy goes, two-door? Wow. You can't see my fingers, Stephen, but you're this close to talking to dice. <laughs> so, anyway, I don't know what happens. We do this all five shows or whatever, all five days. Years go, a couple years go by. Now I'm at uh, MMR, and we're uh, we're so we're associated with uh, KYW at the time, KYW Radio, KYW TV. So we're doing a mutual project together. And the Scott Herman, who is the uh, who is the uh, general manager of KYW Radio in Philadelphia, he's, we're doing something with him, and and he he knows I'm a comedian. He goes, oh, he goes, you do a lot of comedy. Yeah, he goes, I know a lot of comedians myself. I know a lot of people. He goes, uh, I heard you open for Dice. I go, yeah, I, I used to. He goes, yeah, I know a guy I, I grew up with, good friends with Dice. He hadn't seen him in years. He uh, he went to see him in a show, took care of him, did everything, you know, tickets, the whole bit. He goes, yeah. I go, oh, really? He goes, yeah, yeah, they're both, you know. I go, uh, wow. I go, was this in West Art? Yeah, Rascals up there. You know what? 
I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, nice guy, Dice, but boy, he's got a manager, manager who's an asshole. <laughs> I go, was it Rocco Panetti? Yeah, do you know the guy? I go, I'm the asshole. <laughs> he goes, oh, my God, you're kidding. I go, yes, Dice put me up to it. And of course, I did it, being an idiot. But uh, I tell uh, Steve, I, I, I apologize. <laughs> but I'm glad to hear that it turned out that he gets Oh, yeah, now all the whole nine yards took care of him and everything. That is so and then funny. The next day, he comes over to where I'm at and he goes, I got Steve Zucker on the phone. <laughs> I said, Hi, Steven, how are you? I told you you'd make it sooner or later. That's too funny. Now, that no. was hilarious. Then, about a year later, it's three o'clock in the morning, my time on the East Coast, and Dice calls me and he goes, Hey, Grover. What are you doing? Well, it just so happened, it must have been the summertime, and but the rest of the family was out at the shore or something, and I was working, so I had to stay back as a coincidence, because Dice calls at three, would have woke up the entire house. I happened to be up anyway, because I'm a comedian, and you know, you're up at three o'clock in the morning. So, even when you're not performing. So, uh, in any case, Dice says, hey, I, need, I have a favor. I need Rocco to, to talk to this guy. He's an A-list, A-list screenwriter. In L.A., I saw him this morning. I said, hey, Joe, what are you going to write something for me? And he said, oh, we'll do lunch. So I want you to talk to him and say, what happened to lunch? I go, wasn't this earlier today? Yeah, but who cares? I go, I, I can't do that. I go, what's the guy's name? He goes, uh, Joe Stefano. I didn't know who Joe Stefano was. It turns out he wrote the screenplay, screenwriter uh, for Psycho. Okay. I didn't know that at the time. Otherwise, I don't. So I go, well, I don't know. Ring. He must have a three-way going. Hello. It's 12 o'clock, of course. Los Angeles died. Hello. Uh, yeah, Joe. Uh, yeah. Who, who is this? Rocco Panetti. This is Dice Clay's uh, manager. How are you? Oh, uh, I'm fine. What, what, what brings you? What, why are you calling? Yeah, Joe, I, I had to call. Uh, I know you. you you, 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 you got your mindset on writing a screenplay for Dice, but when are you going to get on it? I go, you know, there was something about lunch. Well, that was this morning. I go, yeah, but this guy does arenas. He doesn't have time to wait. <laughs> the guy's starting to laugh. He goes, okay, Rocco, you tell Dice I'll, I'll call him. We'll do lunch. I go, oh, man, this is going to put your career on the map, Joe. <laughs> and so... uh and so anyway, uh, that that was that. And then, and then afterwards, I, I looked them up and I thought, oh, my God. I called the guy who wrote oh. <laughs> Like, oh, my God. So now, now how did you um, how did you parlay into the radio? Uh, it was like 1990. <clears throat> and um, I had uh, uh, John DeBella, who was the host of the morning show on WMMR, which was the premier classic rock station in town at the time. And uh, John had been the uh, sort of celebrity host of, uh, I guess, the Saturday or Friday night show at the Comedy Factory outlet. So I don't know if he was, he was probably getting some money for that, but uh, whatever. So I would occasionally uh, drop in as a, uh, as a guest. I guess comic, and so it by 1990, uh, Debella was sort of uh, 
Stern was encroaching on him. And uh, they were looking for some fresh writing to go with what they already had. And uh, and then he called me in because I, I had a reputation for, you know, writing with Harry Anderson, writing for these other people, writing for myself, being unique, uh, character. And so I guess thought he, that I would bring, you know, a, a fresh element to the show. And uh, and then I think it was uh, September of 1990, I joined the show and and that went on for about four years. Now, what was it like getting up that early? Because, you know, as you said, you're a comedian. Yeah, and... usually I'd be going to sleep at that time. Right. <laughs> uh, well, in the begin- the great thing about radio, and especially, well, i got to say, you know, DeBello, like most morning show DJs, uh, they have a lot of energy because they have to. Um, they have to be up and ready and, and there. Uh but I got to sit on a stool. I could have been in my boxer shorts. It, it, it didn't matter. All I had to do was be ready to have material and, and one-liners and things like that. But he had the drive. And as I always say, I'm a, I'm a good responder, you know. And so as it turned out, and this is a great lesson for me and I think for other people, the more I wrote for that show, the faster I got at it. And I got a reputation for really being quick to write bits, write uh, you know, sketches, uh, incorporate other people, and, uh, and and I feel proud that I was able to bring in other people, that we had like a little a troupe of players who who, who uh, would call in, and I, I'd work with them on writing their bit, um, and, and that was a great, that was a great uh, three, four years. I ended, actually, they, 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 uh, Debella left that show and went to the afternoons, but I stayed on the morning with uh, Pierre Robert, who was the mid-morning guy. They brought him down to do the morning show for a while, and I was on with him for for a little bit. And then, uh, and then I left there. That 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 gig came to an end, uh, and uh, there is a comic Scott Bloom. He does a lot of you know Scott. He does a lot of uh, corporate comedy. I, did he do a lot of like voices? Good looking guy. Yeah, yeah, very slick-looking guy. Yeah, uh, I remember him back doing, doing Scarpati gigs with him. Yes, exactly. Well, that's where I met him. And we used to do uh, improv at the end. You know, Scarpati would always give those comedians who like to do improv, if, at the end of the show, they wanted to come back on and do some improv, they could do it. And, of course, uh, whenever Bloom was on and I was on, we always liked to do it. So uh, it was really fascinating how you, it seems like I've always landed on my feet in terms of surviving and still being able to do, you know, comedy or some kind, some kind of uh, performing. And so um, here is this other gig ending on the radio, and Bloom calls me, who's been doing a lot of corporate comedy, and he says, hey, I'm doing all this comedy work for Cigna Insurance, and they want me to, uh, they want me to do uh, a show for their marketing group uh, they just came up with this new logo, and they want to give them a night out at the Four Seasons Hotel. But I've done so much, I don't know what else to do for them. And I thought maybe, you know, since we worked together at the uh, Comedy Cabaret and did improv, maybe we could come up with something. So I said, well, what's it all about? I said, well, they have this new logo. It's about corporate identity, et cetera, et cetera. I said, well, why don't we, why don't we come on as two, um, as, as two uh, uh, you know, uh, consultants? Two big time, you know, marketing consultants on a, on identity, corporate identity, but we both have the same identity. Like I'm Bob Thompson and you're Bob Thompson. Okay. 
and we both went to the same college, we had the same teachers, and when we get up there, we're more interested in talking to each other than about the crowd. We are so impressed with each other, and we finish each other's sentences, and we start each other's sentences, and we act as though the crowd should be just, you know, thrilled that they're, you know, privy to our conversation. And so we came up with Bob and Bob. Uh, and we must have done, and that, then we went from, we did Cigna, we did, must have done a dozen shows for Cigna and then other corporations, and that lasted for about three years, well, let me see, 70, 94, about two years, and then uh, the opportunity to go on uh, morning television uh, came to me, and I took that, and, and, then, and then Scott went off to do his own thing and has really got a very successful corporate comedy career going. So now, now I, I know you used to produce stuff too. I know you, I remember you did a special on Salisbury steaks or whatever like that. <laughs> See, I have a good memory. I have like the idiot savant memory. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, 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 I dig that. Yes. I might have the same, very, something very similar. If it's important, you can bank on me not to remember it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I we used to do. I linked up with a guy who is also a comedy writer out in LA now. He's been there for over twenty years, uh, Rich Ross, and Rich is a Philly guy. And we got together years ago. Uh, he was an intern at uh, at uh, KYW TV in Philadelphia, and I was doing comedy and was asked by somebody there to work with him on a show for uh, Steve Baskerville, who was like the weather guy, but he also was like the announcer for People Are Talking with uh, Maury Povich. Right, yeah. Uh, ultimately, that was the case, but this was before Maury. So uh, they were talking about giving a show to Steve, but he wanted to do something comedic, and so he brought me in with this Rich. And as it turned out, Rich and I became partners, and Steve just kind of drifted off into the sunset. He, he's made millions probably as a weather guy. I think he's in Chicago now. But in any case... Uh, Steve kind of forgot about us, but but he, he he was with us long enough to introduce us to the production department at KYW. So we started producing bits. We would have field pieces. We get we 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 schedule whole crews, and then time went on, and we were still doing it. And Steve was long gone, and no one at three even knew who we were. <laughs> And we're producing like segments for a show that doesn't even exist. And finally, after about a year and a half, they get a new program director and he calls us in. He goes, who are you guys? <laughs> and, and we had like, you know, uh, a cheap uh, safari park. We did that in Fairmount Park and we'd have like a rabbit. And we had the art department at three make all these signs, you know, watch for the rabbit. Be careful with the rabbit. It's like 30 signs, giant wooden signs they had to make. And we had all these bits. And uh, as it turned out, we didn't get a show. But they got a new program director who liked our stuff. And then we did some bits for Evening Magazine. So okay. see, it pays to hang in and just take authority no matter what. Now, now, are you still doing a lot of stand-up now? Because it seems like none of the clubs are around anymore, really. Until yeah, you. I do mostly charities now. I'm kind of, although I haven't had a lot of people say, you know, I, I used to watch your act for inspiration. Or I used to, you know, that, that, and it makes me feel good. Um, you know, when you, you tell me that you, you, you know, you used to enjoy the act and, uh, I felt like it was a good, you know, that I imparted some, something to guys coming up, you know, up the line. 
but I do mostly uh, charities now. But I, I work for a PBS station in, in uh, actually Bethlehem, PA, outside of Philadelphia. Nope. And I produce uh, and uh, write uh, for a magazine program. So it's like features sort of uh, standard uh, people, places, and things, uh, feature stories. Now, do you, are you, do you host some of them? Do you, or is it just Occasionally just... I'll host the program, although I'm not the regular host. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm kind of a reporter. I also do a uh, one-man show on Edgar Allan Poe, which I've combined comedy and serious performances of his works. And I call it Edgar Allan Poe and the Flip Side of Comedy. Now, how'd you come up with that idea? Well, I figured, you know, I should really, you know, my nature is to do comedy, but I also love doing Poe's works. So how can I bring the two together? Will it work? Well, I did. And I, I performed locally so far, although I did do the annual birthday party in Baltimore where Poe is buried at Westminster uh, uh, Church. Uh, which is kind of like a big honor to be asked to do that. And uh, and so I do sort of monologue between his serious works, like the Telltale Heart or the Black Cat or uh, the Bells or whatever. And so it'll start out kind of funny, talking about my being in Catholic school and the nun was, look like, she used to do, re- you know, renditions of, uh, of the Telltale Heart. And uh, she was all dressed in black. She looked like Poe. She was okay. all dressed in black. Um, you know, she sounded like Poe. She had a little mustache. He had a little mustache. Although hers wasn't all that little, but... Right. So, in any case, uh, and then I, I slowly morph into a more serious mode and then go and give a little historical background to the piece, and then I'll go into the telltale heart, you know, talking about how it's like the first psycho thriller ever written and how he was way ahead of his time, going into the mind of this crazy man and, and set up the story. So uh, I've had a lot of fun with that, too. Now, and it's kind of how, interesting. It's challenging. How often do you perform that? Well, my big month, of course, is October around Halloween, but I'll, I'll do it through the year at schools, colleges, and you know, literature organizations, things like that. That's you know, that's cool. I mean, it's just it's a different idea. You know, you don't think Edgar Allan Poe in comedy, but uh, yeah, it must yeah. it must people must and probably younger kids appreciate it too because you know when you when someone you, when you get in something that's darker, you know, having a little comedy always helps it out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I talk about like when I I was a substitute teacher in the early early days when I was trying to survive, you know, and, and do comedy at the same time. <laughs> And how I, I gave up trying to teach the, quote, lesson plan because the kids weren't listening anyway. Right. Yeah, high schools in Philly. And so I start, I remember doing uh, the Telltale Heart to get into the uh, dramatic club in high school. So I, I started doing that. And that scared the hell out of the kids, and they loved it. And so that's what I put a little routine together. And wherever I would go, I def- immediately ditched the lesson plan and go right into it, no matter what it was, you know. This is physics. Okay, we're going to do Edgar Allan Poe. Now, now, what did you do last weekend? Didn't you do some game show or something like that? Oh, I did. I did. We have like a scholastic scrimmage, like a college ball thing that's for high school students. And just like Jeopardy, you can't even understand the questions. I mean, these kids are geniuses. <laughs> so they, they wanted to have uh, – Bethlehem is celebrating its 275th anniversary. So they wanted to have a whole slew of activities and programs. But they wanted to do a, a – like local celebrity uh, college bowl type thing 
with questions about Bethlehem history and so forth. And so I got to be, you know, I got to clown around and be the host. And it, it was like old times, you know, because I haven't really done a lot of the comedy thing at the TV station, at least in this gig. Uh, but this was the first time I said, you know, why don't you go ahead? You know, do, you know, go with it. Just have fun. And I did. And it was a blast. It was a blast. So now the show, what, what's the show called? The one that you are producing on Bethlehem? My normal show is called Focus. And it's, uh, like I said, it's a half hour magazine show on PBS 39. We come out of Bethlehem, but we broadcast down to Philly, uh, out to uh, Berks County, where Reading is, parts of New Jersey, and up in the Pocono area. Now, what, uh, kind, of, County. what kind of stories are, you, are they? Oh, gosh, all kinds of stories. Veteran stories. Um, I did do a story on a, on a kid who uh, could do a Rubik's Cube with his feet. Okay. That was one of our most popular stories, by the way. <laughs> I showed the kid, like, exercising, you know, putting, like, Rubik's Cubes on his feet and, like, trying to lift them up, doing calisthenics. Um, so that was a funny piece. Character pieces. Uh, I did one on an old general store. I did one with a, an old theater that had been renovated uh, that was right, right out of, like, 1928, 28, something like that. So real, you know, fun and interesting character, uh, you know, character features. Well, yeah, you got to get back on stage. You, got, you guys got to figure out like a Philly comedy night at one of these clubs. And I think that's a good idea. All yes. you guys. Bring back some of the old guys. Will Neary. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and David yes. David E. Hardy and David P. Hardy and, oh. and Jim Daly and, well, Tommy Moore is in North Carolina. And me and Joe, uh, Joey Callahan were talking about how Tommy Moore is like the, uh, he'd be the perfect person to do a, a documentary about Philadelphia comedy scene because the, right. the guy is like he knows I can't think of the word he knows everything about the damn scene he has become the comedy historian for yes. at least Philadelphia comedy it's amazing. I mean it's amazing I can't believe he saved all of these photos he saved all of these newspaper clippings and uh, and his writing is outstanding you know he has his book PhD in happiness uh, and he, he Wow. I, I mean, I always knew he could write, but I never knew he could write that, that well. I mean, and, 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 and be a storehouse. I mean, he's really become the custodian exactly. of our history. Well, you know what, Grover? It's, uh, our hour's almost up. Now, now, how do people get in touch with you? Do you Twitter? Uh, well, probably Facebook is best. we got to get you on Twitter. Yeah, I do have Twitter, but I, I haven't, you know, maybe I need to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still, you know, fighting technology well just you, you put your jokes up because all your jokes were funny <laughs> yeah. so anyway, yeah, it's good for the one-liners I, wa I want to thank you for coming on this was good i'm glad we could do this oh my pleasure steve you got some really good old stories out of me there that's yeah, the way you do it always a lot of fun uh, you know dredging them up and and regaling people with them i hope folks enjoy it so people but i'm so happy for you with your your show well, thank you uh, it's, it's good but so people go follow grover silcox he's uh go follow him go go on facebook i can get him twittering follow me on twitter it's at cooper talk that's at cooper talk go to my website coopertalk.net i have over 525 episodes up there where you can also email me cooper at coopertalk.net and instagram and words with friends cooper talk one challenge me at words with friends you'll probably beat me but I'll play you. And don't forget my other website, StopTheSalt.com. When I went through that health problem, I was in a hospital. That was four years ago, over four years ago. I got out. I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium uh, recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. No big ingredients. 
Just just cook them. You eat them. They're inexpensive. Get it at my website, StopTheSalt.com. You can get it at Amazon. But if you go to my website, I make more money. So follow me on Twitter, at CooperTalk. Go check out Grover Silcox on Facebook. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll be talking to you guys next week. Have a great weekend.